It is good being back with you all. Last week, uh, my family, uh, we went down to Arkansas, home of the Razorbacks. And uh, I didn't see any, though, but they're down there, I guess. Uh, did a little diamond digging in the crater of diamonds. I didn't see any there either, but they're there, I guess. <laughs> we had a wonderful time getting away with family and just uh, enjoying some time together. And, and I hope that you can do some of that, yet as the, the summer season is still about us. Um, before we get into the message today, um, I want to talk with you a little bit about community groups. Um, we started that back in the spring, uh, really at the very end of winter, February and into March, and we had just begun getting those things set up and running, and social distancing then took place. Some of our groups were able to meet together online using different forms of, of media, such as Zoom or Facebook or whatever it was, and, and they used those, and others really didn't have the technology to do that, and so it, it, it really wasn't the best start. But we are still planning on, on opening up community groups, these small group gatherings, uh, but a little bit different. Uh, we're trying to adapt to changes, and I know Rob has been working and planning on trying to do this. We're going to go through the book of Mark uh, in, our, in our small groups. But we're going to try and set it up here in just a near future, and hopefully we'll show you how you can plug into that. Uh, there'll be different ways that you can do that, either going online to our website and scrolling through the ministries and finding our community groups and punching the button there and it takes you to a place where you can then check out the groups that are there. You can do that through your uh, church center planning app that we utilize here on Sundays. Um, you can do that. Uh, we'll probably have links on Facebook. Or if you just want to simply call us and let us know, I want to be a part of one of these groups, then we'll put you down for it. Or uh, even um, in the cards that are with each of the, the chairs here in the, the auditorium, that if you plop one of those out there, put your name and stuff, information on it, and sign up whether or not you want to be a part of one of those community groups. And we'll, we'll try and get in touch with you. We will get in touch with you. We're not going to try. We'll do that and, and hopefully get you plugged in. Now, how we're going to do our community groups is a little bit different. We are going to do the traditional way where somebody hosts a, a group at their house or in another location, and, and they get together every week, and they study through the Bible together face-to-face. That is an ideal situation, and hopefully many people can, can do that. If that's not the case, then we will open up those opportunities to do that again through technology, and we can be the Jetsons once again and kind of do those things back and forth and communicate that way. There's another type of, of meeting, a, kind of a hybrid of all that, uh, and, and it's, it's a terminology called asynchronous. Alan and I looked at each other and went, what? And then Maria Tinney says, yeah, I've been doing that for two years now. <laughs> so it, it's where it's kind of a hybrid of it where you, where you meet together but through technology, and it doesn't necessarily mean once a week, but it can be at your leisure throughout the week, daily, hourly, minutely if you want to do it that way. I mean, it's just this, it's by using technology and then having a video put out there or a question or a statement or the study and then people read it when they have the opportunity and they respond through the different technologies that are out there and so it's this kind of communication that's going on. My daughter is doing this through her college this year and she was going back to school and so this week while we're in, in Arkansas she's trying to communicate with this board of students and the professor and trying to do her work online and, and, and so whenever people found time to do that they would do it. I don't know what it's going to be like for you, but I do know this. I want you all 
to be a part of it. You see, the church is not meant just to gather on Sundays. One of the blessings of this coronavirus is it has forced the church to wake up and to say we've got to do something more than just bring people here. That we've got to be involved in their lives on a daily basis. We've got to introduce Christ to the people out there who don't know about him. And we can't do that just by meeting together on Sundays. You've got to do that at your work. You've got to do that in your school. You've got to do that in your neighborhood. We have got to let people know that there is an alternative to this world and it's heaven and the only way they're going to get there is through Christ and so we've got to introduce him and one of those ways is by doing it house to house face to face person to person we're meant to be encouragement to each other the church when it began they did that they met daily in the temple courts they met in the marketplaces they met in the synagogues they met in their houses and they broke bread together they were daily trying to share the, what Jesus had done with them and how he had had saved them from their own sinfulness and is in offering them an opportunity for forgiveness and redemption and life everlasting and we've got to do that but it's got to be done in a unique way like never before done and I want you to be a part of that. I, I don't want you to miss out on this. And so we're just going to ask. I wish I could make it an imperative. I mean, the book of James that we're going to be getting into has got 50 imperative statements out of 108 verses. I mean, it, it's, it's what you're supposed to do. God wants us to do that. He wants us to be in each other's lives. We just went through Hebrews, and we were told in Hebrews chapter 10 that we should not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But we should encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. We've got to be there with each other some way. I don't care if it's through texting or phone calls or over the internet or face to face. We've got to connect and we've got to bring people in because they've got to know Jesus. Now, you'll find more ways that we can do that. I know as Rob's kind of putting together the list of hosts and leaders and all those kinds of stuff, and we'll share that with you. So look for it in our midweek. Look for it as, as we kind of post things out there for people. But please, prayerfully consider how can you be involved in this and make it a life-changing thing for you. As we begin, uh, we're going to start a study through the book of James. I love James. It is a wonderful, wonderful story that he has written to us, the brother of Jesus, as he lays out for us what it is to be a Christian. And so we're going to kind of dig through these over the next 12 weeks. And, but today I want to kind of give an overview. I found this company out there, and it's out, you probably have seen them as well, but they take the books of the Bible, and they kind of give just a brief overview and a summary of it. So I've got a video I want you to see, and then we'll dig into it a little bit more. The letter of James, or at least that's his name in English. If you look in the Greek, you will see that his name is Jacobos, which translates his <coughs> Hebrew name Yaakov. And that's why most ancient and modern translations render his name as Jacob. And that's what we're going to call him in this video. Now, there are many Jacobs in the New Testament. Two of them belong to Jesus' inner circle of the 12 disciples. But this letter comes from the Jacob, who was the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now, we learn this Jacob's story from the book of Acts and from Paul's letters. After Peter moved on from Jerusalem to go start new churches, Jesus' half-brother Jacob rose to prominence as a leader in the mother church in Jerusalem. It was made up mostly of Messianic or Christian Jews. 
This was the first Christian community ever, and we know that it fell on hard times during the 20 years that Jacob was its leader. There was a famine that led to great poverty in the region, and these Messianic Jews were being persecuted by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. But through it all, Jacob was known as a pillar of the Jerusalem church. He was also known as a peacemaker who led with wisdom and courage until he was tragically murdered. And in this book, we have the legacy of Jacob's teaching and wisdom condensed into a short and very powerful work. The book begins like a letter. He greets all the Messianic Jews who were living outside the land of Israel. But this does not read like one of Paul's letters where he addresses specific problems in one local church. Rather, this book is a summary of Jacob's sage wisdom for any and every community of Jesus' followers. And Jacob's goal isn't to teach new theological information. Rather, he wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. Jacob's wisdom has been heavily influenced by two sources. The first is Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom of God, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which he's constantly echoing and quoting in the book. The second key influence is the biblical wisdom book of Proverbs, especially the poems in Proverbs 1 through 9. Jacob literally grew up with Jesus and with the book of Proverbs, and so now his own teaching sounds like them. It's stamped by their language and imagery. The book consists of short, challenging wisdom speeches that are full of metaphors and easy to memorize one-liners. And in essence, Jacob is calling the Messianic community to become truly wise by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. The body of the book is in chapters 2 through 5, which consists of 12 short teachings that call God's people to wholehearted devotion to the way of Jesus. And altogether, they don't develop one main idea in a linear way. Each teaching kind of stands alone and concludes with a catchy one-liner. But all of these teachings are connected through key repeated words and themes. It's really cool. At the opening of the book's body, there are two teachings. First, about favoritism and love. Jacob exposes how we tend to show favor to people who can benefit us, and we neglect people who can't, usually because they're needy. Jacob says this is the opposite of love as Jesus defined it. He goes on to show what genuine faith does and does not look like. So if someone says that they have faith in God, but neglects people who are needy or poor, this person's faith is dead, he says. Their actions betray what they say they believe, and genuine faith always results in obedience to Jesus' teachings. Now scattered throughout the body of the book, we find three different places where Jacob develops Jesus' own teaching about our words. So with the same mouth, we unleash pain upon people and then go offer praise to God. So messed up. And also, we judge people and then go talk badly about them behind their backs. And we also all tend to distort the truth to our own advantage. How we talk about people opens up a window into our hearts and our core values. Our words tell the real truth about our character. Jacob also believes that God's kingdom community, as Jesus taught about it, is the kind of place where the divisions created by wealth and social status are dismantled. So he warns first about the arrogance that wealth can create in people who believe it will be around forever. He says, no, your wealth will one day rot just like you. In contrast, God's people are to live with patience and hope for Jesus' return to set all things right. And this should inspire a life of faith-filled prayer. 
Now this part of the book, all of these teachings, they're so powerful and there's way more than we have time for in this video. But seriously, read all of them and slowly. Now, placed in front of these 12 wise teachings is the introductory chapter. It's a flowing stream of wise teachings and one-liners and they're designed to sum up the main ideas of the entire book. This chapter actually introduces you to all the key words and themes that you're going to meet in chapters 2 through 5. Jacob opens by saying that he knows from personal experience life is hard. He was martyred after all not long after writing this letter. But he believes that life's trials and hardships are actually paradoxical gifts that can produce endurance and shape our character. God can do amazing work inside of us in the midst of suffering and help us become perfect and complete. Now that word perfect, it's really important for Jacob. He repeats it seven times in the book. In biblical Hebrew and in Greek this word refers to wholeness. It means living a completely integrated life where your actions are always consistent with the values and beliefs that you've received from Jesus. Jacob knows that most of us actually live as fractured people with big inconsistencies in our character. We are all more compromised than we want to admit. However, God is on a mission to restore fractured people to make them whole. And it begins with wisdom, the ability to see my hardships through a new perspective. God will generously give this kind of wisdom to people who ask for it in faith without doubting God's character. And when we realize our humble and frail place before God, we are forced to choose between anxiety or trust. And true wisdom means choosing to believe that God is good despite my circumstances. So if it's poverty that's forcing you into hard times in life, Jacob says try and view it as a gift that forces you to trust in God alone. And besides, wealth is fleeting. It's all going to pass away like wildflowers in the summer heat. And so when we do fall into hard times, don't accuse God. Rather, let your circumstances teach you what Jesus taught about God's character. That the Father is generous. That he's there to meet us in our pain and that he's trustworthy. It's this God who through Jesus has given us new birth to become new kinds of humans who can face their suffering with total trust in the Father, just like Jesus did. And this new humanity is something we discover when we not only listen to God's word, but do what it says. Jacob calls God's word here the perfect Torah of freedom. He's referring here to the greatest command of the Torah as passed on to us through Jesus, that he freed us to love God and love our neighbor. And Jacob shows practically what that kind of love looks like. It means speaking to others in a kind and loving way. It means serving the poor. And it means living with wholehearted devotion to God alone. Now you can see how this opening chapter contains all the key words and ideas explored more deeply in the 12 teachings of chapters 2 through 5. Jacob immersed himself in the wisdom of Jesus and of the Proverbs and he's given us a great gift in this book of his own wisdom. This is a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. And that is what the book of James, or Jacob, is all about. good summary. As I said, they, this company has, uh, all the books of the Bible are set up that way to kind of help give it a, a quick brief overview. It reminds me of Judy Lewis when I was in uh, grade school down in the children's church and she would do these chalk talks. She would tell the story and draw the pictures and stuff. But, uh, and then you'd get to take home the, the picture if you were the lucky one that day. <coughs> it's going to give a, a little bit more of an overview of some of the key themes uh, and then we'll get into something that we probably don't normally do and we probably should do a lot more often. 
usually when a letter was written to a church, they would receive it, and then somebody would stand up, and the congregation would then be read to, and they would get the story or the letter or the commands or whatever it was that was sent out and about. And so we're actually going to do that today. I'm going to kind of break down a few more things, and then we're going to read through the book of James. It's something that I think you can do on a daily basis as we go through this study or a weekly basis or whatever, but it does not take much to do that. And when you put it all together and let it speak for itself, it's powerful and it's life-changing. So let me tackle a few things. You see, James's primary focus in his letter is... Uh, to, the, to the churches that are dispersed all over the, the world at that time was he wanted them to know that Christians should live out their faith daily. People should know that you're a Christian by the things that you do. It sets you apart. You, you can't just be a hearer of the word, but you needed to be a doer as well. And so he's going to develop this theme in light of the social conflict that they were going through as, as well as they were experiencing some things with, with the struggles of finances of rich and poor and then just the spiritual conflicts that were taking place as well within the church. But he writes a practical book on living as a Christian should live faithful and devoted a full life in Christ so here are a few of the themes I want us to look at as we'll break into it uh, each week the character of God is discovered within the book of James we find out that God he is a gracious giver he, he loves to give gifts and he's very generous in that but he will also discover that he is an unchanging creator he, he doesn't shift around like the shadows or, or things he's constant he's remained the same yesterday today and always he is merciful and he is compassionate and Jonah understood that that's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh because God is merciful and compassionate we also discover that he is the one and only God and there's something unique about this one and only God he's very jealous he's jealous of the spirit that he's put within us when we try to connect it with other things that are not him and he wants to have this relationship with us. He is also gracious and just as a magistrate. I mean, he is ultimately the judge. But he's very gracious in the things that he does. And he's just in his judgments. He's also a healer of those who need healing of various kinds. The book of James is also going to lay out for us the character of wisdom. It's one of these books we've mentioned here in our little thing that it's, it's like the books of Proverbs that have these quick one-liners in there that can be totally separate and, and independent of themselves and yet carry a big punch. Kind of like the book of Proverbs and the books of wisdom. And so it is this, this character of wisdom and true wisdom, we're told in the book of James, comes from above. It's not of this world. And true wisdom enables one to withstand the struggles of life. I mean, hardships are going to come. But with the wisdom of God, we can figure out how to overcome all those things that happen. True wisdom also brings peace in the midst of the storms. And this world can't offer that to us at all. We're also going to discover in the book of James that there's purpose behind all the trials and the testings of our faith that we're going to endure. God allows us to experience these things so that our faith can grow up, so that we can mature it's that process the more we go through things the more we have an understanding of what life truly is and we grow up we get stronger in it but we have to also understand he mentions that temptations they don't come from God rather the temptations 
they, they start within us. It's something that we create by our own desires, and also Satan is behind them as well. But they are definitely not from God. The struggles that we have because of temptations, those are not from God. Those are things that we create on our own and those that we fall prey to with Satan and his attacks. We also discover that there are rewards of various kinds, both present and future, for those who patiently endure the struggles of life. Sometimes you're going to be rewarded now. And other times we're going to wait until we're crowned in glory for them. There's another uh, a key theme that comes in here. It's, it's, it's this purpose of, of our actions and what we do and, and how we do these works and deeds. It's kind of like an ethical mandate that goes beyond just hearing the Word of God to living it out in our daily conduct. In other words, preacher, practice what you preach. And really, that's what we're supposed to do. If the Word of God says it, I need to live it. I don't just merely listen to it, but I follow through with it as well. We are also told that, that uh, um, faith has a relationship to both works and justification. Justification, we know, comes only by the grace of God through faith. But that's not it. Because it also tells us there is a necessary result of our faith which causes us and motivates us to do something in response to the salvation and the justification that's been given by the goodness and the grace of God. Now, if there is no lifestyle of faith, if, if we have no actions on the part of the way that we believe in God and what we have, have accepted from Him as this grace, then there really was no justification in the first place. Faith James says, without works or action is dead. It's useless. You can't just say, I believe, and then go on living the way the rest of the world lives. You've got to demonstrate your belief by the way you live. And James tells us, faith is, is really comes from God and the grace of God. But because of that, now we've got to act it out. We've got to demonstrate to other people what we have done by surrendering ourselves to him and how he changes us. Another key theme is the power of the tongue. Well, we know a lot about that today, don't we? I mean, our media cannot get enough about words that are spoken or words that are assumed to be spoken. And we really destroy one another through that mighty, well, they say the pen is more mighty than the sword. And so are our tweets, apparently. We cannot help but be vicious with our words. There is power with what we say. And so he tells us that the tongue is very powerful in it. It can tear down, but it can also build up and restore. The uniqueness about it when it comes to God is that he refuses to accept our praise if we're going to connect it with cursing other people. He says it just can't happen. You cannot have those together. As a matter of fact, it's, it's impossible. And he compares it to uh, fresh water and salt water. You cannot just go out and drink all the water in the ocean because that's not healthy for you. You need fresh water. But you're not going to find it in the ocean. You're going to find it in the streams. You're going to find it in the wells that are buried beneath the ground. You're going to find fresh water that does not contain all the minerals that are not going to do your body good. But then yet, you can't find salt water in a fresh pond either. They just don't go together. And so the same thing cannot be 
within the mouth. We cannot have both worship and praise of God and then turn around and cuss out the guy who just cut you off while you're driving on your way to work. We can't use the language that we're using on Facebook and on Twitter and all these other social media things and get away with it. God sees it. He can read all languages. Now, there's another theme that's developed here, and it's about this. It's the power of prayer. Prayer really is our proper response to, to the trials and the struggles that we have and how God intervenes in us. But however, it must not be self-seeking. That's one thing James wants us to know. You don't pray to God to get your goodies. We pray to God for the benefit of others, but also for our own personal health as well. And prayer is not only be present when we find ourselves afflicted or sick, but it ought to be present when we're celebrating the things in life as well. Prayer motivates God to heal both physically and spiritually when called upon. J. Vernon McGee said this. He said, faith is the root of salvation. Works are the fruit of salvation. Faith is the cause of salvation where works are the result of salvation. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to James and we're going to start at the very beginning. It won't take us very long and we're going to read through it. I just wanted to speak for itself and allow you to let it sink into your heart and listen as if you're one of the readers in one of those churches that had been dispersed because of the persecution, and now all of a sudden you've got this letter. It comes to you from the brother of Jesus, and he's stationed in Jerusalem there with the church, trying to help it grow and stay firm and stay strong in the midst of all the persecution. But he sends a letter out to you, and this is the first time you've heard it. And for some of you, unfortunately, this may be the first time you've heard it. And then fortunately, it may also be the first time you've heard it as well. So let's, let's dig into it as James writes to us. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself 
tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. Now do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart? This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, well, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judge with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man, and are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressions. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, 
but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, by faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my works I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also Faith, apart from works, is dead. Now, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great is a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening from fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Well, who is wise and understanding among you? 
by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast to be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, what causes quarrels and, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field 
which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the earth and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins powerful words and I think they speak for themselves we just need to open our hearts and let them penetrate our soul because they are life changing I don't know what you have to do in life other than accept Jesus as Lord and Savior I don't think anything is more important than that as we dig into this book of James, may it penetrate and change the way you live and the way you act. And your faith will become stronger and you'll become more bolder and you'll be able to go out into our world with all of its struggles and all of its hardships and make a difference for the kingdom of God. Will you stand as we sing?